0: Hello, blogging. Head- hello. Oh, sorry.
1: <laughs> oh, it's going to be that kind of day. <laughs> yes. You go first. Hello, blogging heads nation. This is Heather Hulbert. I run the New Models of Policy Change program here at New America in our spiffy new offices.
0: Uh, hello, I'm Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. I also write spoiler alerts for the Washington Post. And welcome to the latest edition of Dresbert. And
1: we should start off by saying uh Dan has made himself quite the the Twitter celebrity this week and um attracted a, attracted a degree of intensity that we're not really used to in the in the foreign affairs Twitter community um by his weighing in on the um controversy at Yale over race relations, appropriateness of, of administration speech, free speech. What else are we calling this controversy?
0: Uh- contra that's my favorite word to use Mm. on this because I think I used it multiple times in the the post that I wrote. Um, Yeah, also, you know, the the question about safe spaces or, you know, how do minority members on campus deal with these kinds of things?
1: Yeah, and I actually, I I think Dan may have been hoping that Dresbert would be a safe space for him free of, (laughs) of further conversation on this topic. But I really wanted to. I I was um, had very powerful echoes for me yesterday. I taped, um, I taped a video conversation for a different provider. It felt like I was cheating, but um, it was me. It meant nothing to you, though, right, Heather? It meant that's yeah, yeah. Dan, you're the only one. You're the only one. It means anything. Um,
0: (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, for the umpteenth time that I have no hope of being confirmed for anything ever. It's just, good, it's just good to get that out of the way. Listen, if
0: I'm unconvertible, I'm bringing everyone else down with me. Go ahead.
1: But um, no, so, so there I was, um, and I was the youngest member of the conversation on reinventing American foreign policy and the only non-white male member of the conversation. And, and I just, I got to tell you what, I'm, you know, I'm very proud of what women have been able to do in the field. And I still believe that women are grossly discriminated against in the field, but I'm nobody's diversity poster child. And, you know, the idea that I'm a diversity on a panel people should be embarrassed about. And that just, you know, made me think about how totally insulated our community remains from the currents of debate that are happening at Yale and Mizzou and other places. And what a problem that is, um, for the future of an American foreign policy that looks anything like or is in any way familiar to the majority of people who live in this country. Huh. Okay, so... So I, I just I just kind of, when every time one of these debates happens and part of me thinks, oh, thank God, I work in national security and I don't have to deal with this stuff, the other part of me thinks, just wait, because it will come. You know, yep. that, that we in the national security community should not delude ourselves that we are immune to this kind of debate this kind of activism and this kind of scrutiny frankly and you know we deserve more
0: scrutiny than we get well, okay so let me let me offer a few responses the first on the general thing about you know wading into the ale thing uh you're right this generated a level of response and i don't mean response in a nasty sense i mean i actually enjoyed the engagement i wound up having On social media uh, and a variety of other things on this, because um, I actually think I learned a lot. Uh, Plus, also, I'm enough of a celebrity whore so that I was really happy Don Cheadle tweeted at me. Um, But uh, but to to tie it more to your your specific question about foreign policy, I think this is interesting. I would say if I I would push back on a few things, though. The first is, is that I do think things have changed somewhat on this, even in the last five or six years. So I'm thinking about foreign policy interrupted, for example, and the push to, um, to obviously include more women, for example, on foreign policy panels in Washington and more generally. Um, you know, I, The conference that I actually had last month on foreign policy in, in 2016, um, I was pretty damn happy because we, uh, we honored the Bechdel rule, I think, on all but one panel. Um, And there were a few majority women. So on the gender, uh, on the gender issue, I think things have actually changed. The more interesting thing here is the the um, other forms of heterogeneity on this, uh, particularly with respect to questions of race. And I think there's an interesting contrast here because you can argue that at the highest levels of foreign policy, there actually has been more heterogeneity. Um, I mean, the last 20 years of secretaries of state, uh, John Kerry, I believe, is the only white guy. Is that correct?
1: Um, well, 20 years ago, Warren Christopher was secretary. So you've had two so, guys in 20 okay. years. I, I
0: basically, since Albright was what I was thinking. But I mean, Albright, you know, Colin Powell, Condi Rice, Hillary Clinton, and then and now John Kerry. So, you know, and in some ways that I think actually matters a great deal because, it, it you know, questions of at least in terms of perceptions of the rest of the world, um, I think that matters. Whether or not um, I agree with you that Um, In questions of race, you know, the foreign policy community is awfully damn white, Um, but not exclusively. And I I do think that this is changing over time. A related issue, and this is an uncomfortable one, is whether or not people of color who enter, you know, college or higher education or want to study uh, foreign affairs or what have you, wind up getting shunted into areas that are not considered high profile. In the same way that, for example, you know, there's the joke in economics that all women go into labor, meaning that a lot of women go into labor economics, um, and so that winds up being a sort of, you know, stereotypically uh, female field. I do wonder if a lot of people of color wind up getting directed into part studying parts of the world that are not considered high, uh, sort of high politics, for lack of a better way of putting it.
1: There's that. I think the other thing that you you have to add to that is the the sort of high bar to entry into this field, whether it's being able to pay for grad school or whether it's being able to break into a field that basically assumes you will work for free or damn near for free. And if you are already coming out of college with a lot of loans, you know, you, you just can't do that.
0: So there's a rel- even. Sorry, sorry a, I, I just this actually addresses your point. There's a related issue, which is, as you well know, what we're talking about when we talk about the foreign policy community is a very nebulous thing. But the one thing that's definitely true is that it's networked. Um, you know, it's yeah. all about who you know, who is your rabbi, who are your mentors and so forth. And so, you know, that's something that's particularly tough to crack. Um, yeah. and and I think an additional barrier I think that's a fair point,
1: yeah, and I have to say i'm I'm not as sanguine about women as you are, and so I'm even less sanguine about members of minority communities um in because of that pipeline issue that where you know the difference between and it's wonderful the signals that we've sent to the world with our with our high profile appointees um although I would note that diversity at state you know has not been matched. I mean, you have state and the NSC where you had two African American women, but uh, you know, DoD and the intelligence community are kind of same as it ever was. And if you look down the line and you say to yourself, you know, I mean, the other thing that's interesting to note is, of course, we do have grotesque overrepresentation. Or grotesque is a wrong word, but we have overrepresentation of minorities in the military. Which, I mean, yeah, is everybody's work <laughs> No, sorry, especially on <laughs> yes, Veterans exactly. Day. We have large overrepresentation of minorities in the military, which, of course, is every bit as much national security policy as what you and I yeah. do. So. Um, and yet, it is interesting that that's not translating into a flow of retired Hispanic and African American military professionals into policy jobs.
0: Well, I mean, at first, I'm not, I would push back a little bit i mean colin powell obviously represents the the most obvious counterexample to that and you can argue
1: um yeah come on colin powell is the exception but the the other question is
0: whether this is a generational effect which is to say you know as you have uh veterans from iraq and afghanistan starting to you know get to the age where they can either run for office and or uh you know serve appointed office will you see an increase but i but that's a frustrating answer to give because it says well just wait and uh you know that that uh, I acknowledge that's not necessarily the easiest answer to offer.
1: Although you make an interesting point because I can immediately think of two Asian American female legislators yeah. um, who are who are veterans. Right. So so you're right that there's a generational change happening, but um at the same time you have the network problem that that we that you referred to earlier. And so I just think um incidents like what we've seen in the past couple of days ought to remind us to look for similar patterns in our own areas of endeavor. How's that?
0: Uh, I have no problem with that uh with that uh, point and would would agree and it's and the other thing is that I I think unfortunately it's going to be a frustratingly slow process although I have to admit part of this for me is difficult to deal with because at Fletcher this is not an issue um mostly because uh half of the half of the students that I'm teaching are overseas students um and so as a result uh it's a pretty damn heterogeneous group but you're right that that part of the issue is I think what what um well one of my best friends once described as the 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 hourglass problem which is it's extremely easy um at, if you take a look sort of at the junior level you know sort of younger to mid 20s till about 30 uh you know the, the sort of foreign policy people are pretty damn diverse and then people get married and start to have children and other things, you know, mortgages need to be paid and so on and so forth. And then there is often a brutal winnowing at that point. And it might be that the winnowing is skewed.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, I think the winnowing is still quite skewed by gender. And so yep. it wouldn't surprise me at all that it's at least as skewed by, by race and ethnicity, but Speaking of astonishing progress on race and ethnicity, we should switch here to the Republican debate last night. Right. Um, And the reason that we want to talk about this particular Republican debate is that we finally had in public the thing that um, foreign policy wonks have been saying for about two years now would happen, which was that we actually had a debate between the... Wings. Wings. Neocon and um, I'm trying to think of a word that isn't isolationist. Um,
0: non-interventionist. The
1: neocon wing. Then the non. Thank you. The non-interventionist wing of the Republican Party. And and it's. I rather doubt that you will see that in any more full flower than you saw it last night. Um. In part because I think that may have been sort of Ron Paul's last great gasp. Rand Paul. But.
0: Sorry. Thank boy. I'm. No. What would I do without you, Jessica? <laughs> um. It's possible although I mean, it's very it, it was very interesting to me at least uh, the post debate reaction because i don't I agree with you that this might be Rand Paul's last gasp on the main stage um, although you never know because in some ways this was the debate where I think he most fully articulated his foreign policy position which I assume is going to be at least popular with some element um, of the the Republican Party or you know Republican party voters I mean they're not all uh, They're not all neocons in that sense. And I do wonder there is a slight chance I would offer that if Donald Trump fades more, that some of those voters would actually go to to Rand Paul, Um, because Trump is actually weirdly the the not all that interventionist either, as his answer on Syria suggested. Um, And go ahead.
1: That was one of the fascinating things last night that you saw Trump lining up with Paul. Mm Not just on Syria, but also in terms of sort of well, you know, obviously we have to keep talking to Russia and China. Right. Um, oh, that is well, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I don't know that the well I can talk to him because we hung out in the green room. I'm not sure it's really quite fair to class that with Paul's view of the it, world, no, but right. but you could you could draw a pretty clear line between the two of them um, and the rest yeah. of the field, and and you really. You got to see that clearly. And I think, you know, if Republican voters are watching the whole debate and they see that and they think to themselves, well, hmm, that makes sense. What was really remarkable to me was how much the audience for that particular debate was really amped up to to be negative on both Paul and Trump on those issues. So that you had you you had an audience that seemed very primed to to represent um, the way the Republican Party establishment has been working to sideline the the Rand Paul view of the world. So in a funny way, I mean all the piece although I thought Paul made, you know, the best statement of his case, (coughs) although he was it was also almost like it was set up to to push it aside.
0: Yeah, I mean, I would say a few things. First, it's always dangerous to judge how well a debate plays by how well it plays in that audience, because, you know, I mean, obviously it's a cue that we will pick up, but it's not obvious to me that voters more generally are, you know, they on the one hand might take that cue, but on the other hand, they might reject it. Um, the other thing that I thought was interesting was you're right. I mean, on the whole, Paul was really, you know, when the, when the serious foreign policy debate started, Trump actually didn't open his mouth, which was his probably his brightest move, Um because the one time he did try to articulate anything of substance when he talked about TPP, uh, Rand Paul schooled him pretty badly because he got fundamental facts about the agreement wrong. Um, but to step back more generally, the debate in, between Paul and Rubio uh, in particular was interesting because you're right. Pretty much every other person on that stage sort of sided with Rubio on this. Um, and then and I, in words I never thought I was going to say out loud, Ted Cruz Actually tried to kind of like steer a moderate third path between the two of them, uh, and I actually thought did so in a reasonably effective way. That the line about you know you think it's expensive to defend America, try not defending America. Yeah, it's a good line, um, and uh, and I think you know articulated uh, suggested a, an interesting position for for Cruz to take. Um, I, I think in some ways the really interesting thing. Going forward is going to be how well does Rand Paul continue to do in the polling, and does he get kicked off that stage or not? Uh, because if he does, you can argue it'll be very easy to write the narrative of, okay, you know the the Republican voters are clearly you know favor the sort of neocon worldview in a way that um, uh, in a way that Paul does not represent. Although I will point out that it's far from obvious to me that. Foreign policy really is going to influence how voters do. So it might be that Rubio, for example, and Cruz do well uh, as a result of this debate, but I don't know if that had anything to do with foreign policy. It's that we were paying attention to the foreign policy stuff, because that actually was a genuinely, as you say, substantive, interesting interaction between the two.
1: Two things about that. First, you know, it's an interesting point about Cruz, that when he first came to Congress, um many of the non-interventionist Republicans in DC were expecting him to join their ranks and be something of a champion. And um, I was involved in some early efforts to try to reach out to him on a number of issues where um, Republicans and Democrats have worked together on civil liberties, surveillance, Guantanamo. And Cruz, you know, everyone was a little bit surprised that Cruz hewed as as much to the mainline Republican positions as as he has. So there is clearly the temptation there to try to f- to figure out how he can scoop up um that part of of Trump's audience. Um I also was really interested to see Rand Paul opted to make his presentation really um starting from, you know, the sort of what is a conservative, what is a conservative right. and making a very fiscal argument. Yeah. Um and I so I went back and looked at some polling this morning and you've seen Republican voters shift away from looking at national security through that lens for about a year and a half now. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I didn't have time to go back and look at was how much that tracks with world events versus how much it tracks with some of the commentators and TV newscasters who are the most influential voices in republican opinion shaping deciding that they had had about enough of Rand Paul and that they wanted to to sort of um push the base back the other way and i think that's an important thing to look at because you know frankly 2 years ago the approach that paul took last night was polling very well in the party and you you and and you know i think the the fact that you just saw this enormous plus up to defense spending um, through a, an off-budget method, which in principle should be anathema to fiscal conservatives, you know, shows you how much that that needle has moved
0: on on Republican public. Opinion. Well, I would say a few things have happened. I mean, if I if I was going to argue why this is the case, I agree with your objective, your 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 argument that this is not playing as well with re- Republican voters as it did two years ago. I would say there are probably three reasons for that. The first is the sort of world is on fire. Argument, which is just dis- debatable, but nonetheless, the fact that you've seen a lot of sort of conflagrations in the world that, that are far more uh, headline grabbing than they used to be, you know, feeds the sense that we're in a more insecure world, and therefore we have to spend more on defense. Um, I think the second thing is, is that Paul himself, throughout most of twenty fourteen, actually it's not that he sounded like a hawk, but he sounded more hawkish. Um, I think one of one of Paul's strategies all of last year was to try to convince sort of conservative Republicans, that he really wasn't his father and that he did believe in certain instances in, in, you know, overseas intervention and what have you. So part of it, I think, is that he muted or he dialed down the rhetoric. And the third, and let's be blunt about this, which because it was in some ways that was the largest source of cognitive dissonance in last night's debate, is that, you know, the economy has actually done pretty damn well over the last two years. Uh, and so as a result, the sort of fiscal picture, while in the long term is obviously a source of con- some concern... Most of the fiscal doomsaying that has been taking place by Republicans over the last five years, gosh, turned out to be wrong. Um, And so if it turns out that, uh, you know, the economy is growing by a little more than they expected, and more importantly, tax revenues are a little more than they expected, it's not shocking if they decide, let's spend all that on defense.
1: Well, the one piece that I would add to that analysis, and it's something I implied earlier, is this kind of mediating question of where is the Republican base taking its cues yeah. from? And there's really interesting work looking at younger voters from both parties and saying, who do you consider the party leadership? Who are the people that you get your, that you get your information about what is a good Republican or what is a good Democrat or what is a good conservative? And when you ask, um, this was done in, in exit polling. And and uh, when you ask young Democrats this, they say, Barack Obama, Nancy Pelosi, John Kerry, Hillary Clinton. So so there's an identification of Elites. elected yeah. officials with with what are you supposed to think right. if you are a Democrat. For young Republicans, it was TV figures. Oh God. Not elected officials. So, you know, it's not John Boehner or even Mitch um, McConnell or, Justin Amash yeah. telling you what to think. It's it's the TV talking heads and the radio talking heads. So so that you have, and this is just an interesting aside on, on climate change, that that you have this situation, which which Greg Sargent wrote about in the Post, or, um, it must have been last week, and you saw in the debate last night that um, the party elites, party elites are well aware that climate change is a real thing, yeah. and you, you now see majorities of Republicans saying, yes, climate change is a real thing, we're still not sure who's causing it, and we still think it's a bad idea to spend money to do anything about it, but we think it's happening But then you have Tea Party and evangelical voters still saying it's not a real thing. It's not happening. And, you know, there. So there's where you see the actual elected leadership of the Republican Party and its um, media leadership, you know, pushing different lines in a way that, you know, you had a couple candidates last night
0: actively trying to straddle. Okay, that's interesting, although I would say that the the one part of that argument that, that sticks out to me and makes me wonder is that you said that this is how younger GOP voters get their cues. And the fact is the GOP skews much older. And so this actually causes me to wonder two things. First, this helps to explain why in so many polls you see Trump and Carson doing so well, because They, you know, play well – they either play well on television or they particularly play well with the very talking heads that you're talking about. That said, if that's the case, it would not shock me at all if those polls show right up to Iowa that these guys are doing well and then it turns out they actually don't do well in the actual voting because their young voters don't show up.
1: Well, what you've just described is, in many ways, I mean, it kind of, you could you could extend that to the political system writ large, right? Because in some ways, what we just had here in Washington with the budget deal and the um, the elevation of of Paul Ryan as Speaker is kind of the establishment striking yeah. back, and the insiders whose modes of power exercised through traditional committee structures and the traditional party structures have been a little bit in abeyance the past few years, kind of figuring out how to reassert, how to reorganize and reassert themselves. Um, and if you you could imagine, I mean, particularly, frankly, in Iowa, where organizing is key and, you know, there is sort of a known magic to how you do a caucus successfully. Right. And you could easily imagine Trump and Carson getting out organized by people who know how the system right, works, exactly. um, you know, New Hampshire and other states that that don't have the caucus system, it's a little more challenging. But although even there, it's do partly
0: have, a lot. It, you know, it, it's retail politics, which requires yep. a certain effort.
1: Yeah, which requires certain skills not normally associated either with brain surgery or deal making. Yes. <laughs> um, but um, but no, I mean, and this is where we're, we're I think we're we're living in this odd period in the U.S. where both power structures are operating at the same time. Yeah. And at any, given, at any given moment, you you're part of your job as an analyst is yeah. to figure out which, which power structure is going to win in right. a no, given
0: situation. And we're operating in this sort of weird reality. Although I would also add there is a distinct, and we, we should probably move on to actual foreign affairs beyond this, but there is a genuine startling role reversal here from when you and I were kids, for lack of a better way of putting it, in which everything you're describing fits the tensions within the Republican Party and the conservative movement more generally if you switch and move to the Democrats, the Democratic nomination is playing out so perfectly along the party decides kind of model that it's striking to me in this, you know, the, the degree to which that, it, I mean, this is how it used to work in Republican, uh, you know, in Republican nominations of nominations passed, whereas the Democrats, it was always the free for all. Um, but, you know, it it, it it it's just striking to me the extent to which it's been reversed.
1: Yeah, although I have to say... I mean, Sanders is doing better than I think anyone thought he would do, or that the party decides model suggested he he could do. So I think I, if Democrats get too complacent, along the lines that you just said, there, um, and and this actually is maybe a good way of shifting our lens from the U.S. to overseas, mm-hmm. because you know everywhere from the Israeli elections, the the British. Mm-hmm both the British parliamentary elections and then the unexpected elevation of Jeremy Corbyn as labor leader, you know, you, you, the Canadian elections that just happened where you've had um, dynamics that were not the, not the not the way it always worked.
0: Right. No, that's a fair, uh, that's a fair point. I would, I mean, it does raise this interesting question. We talk a lot in the United States about the rise of political polarization, particularly among the elites. The, the evidence that I've seen suggests somewhat less so among ordinary citizens, although what's happening with ordinary citizens is that they're engaging in what's called party sorting, which means that it, what people that used to be conservative Democrats now say, oh, no, I'm actually a Republican. It's not that their views have changed necessarily. It's that they're joining the appropriate party from an ideological perspective.
1: We give you the Kentucky gubernatorial yeah, exactly.
0: election. Um, what is interesting is whether polarization, as we talk about it in the United States, is a more global phenomenon. Um, because, again, take a look at the UK where you have Jeremy Corbyn, who I believe is slightly to the left of, you know, Khrushchev um, in terms of of his articulation of what he wants. Um, You know, Cameron's conservative, but he has to deal with with the UKIP uh, fringe on the right, or for that matter, the the depth of ideological divergence uh, in the Canadian election, although that doesn't work quite as well, because I I believe Trudeau is far more moderate than, let's say, the NDP, which was the true liberal or true left party there. Um, But, you know, also think about Poland, where you had a reactionary movement uh, or a more reactionary right party take charge. Israel's election, as you said. Um, You know, this is one of the interesting questions for comparative politics is whether you can talk about polarization in the American context and think about whether it applies more globally.
1: Right. And how much that has, you know, and and is there a way that we are misunderstanding it in the U.S. by mapping our two-party
0: system onto Onto parliamentary systems, that's true. Because my understanding is actually, I I, I had to do some, I did some research on this. And my understanding is that at least until 2008, after that I haven't seen much evidence, but until 2008, the evidence in Europe was actually for less polarization, not more. But I do wonder if things have changed post-2008 and post-euro crisis.
1: Well, I guess yeah, and it's almost again. I'm I'm what I'm suspicious about is how well the polarization that's happening follows the traditional party lines in Europe. That you have the combination of the economic crisis in Europe and now the refugee sort crisis.
0: Of
1: refugee crisis, which is, I mean, it's not. It's important. Not. It's not just this refugee. Well, crisis. it's a larger
0: immigration it's, question and questions about national yes. identity.
1: Yep. And this actually seems like a good place to pivot to to one of the other things we said we were going to right. talk about, which is that um, uh, David Cameron this week came out and gave a speech in which he basically laid down conditions for a deal that he wants to negotiate with the EU and then bring back to the UK and hold a referendum saying, under these conditions, should we stay in the EU? And what was fascinating about, about he he had four conditions, which basically were, give the European parliament more power and roll back the power of the the EU bureaucracy, Mm -hmm. Um, roll back EU regulation and increase competitiveness Mm -hmm. and um, change. I mean, roll back change, um, give national authorities more power to restrict um, the flow of people across borders. Um, You know, give, give the, give the UK, which doesn't even belong to the Schengen agreement that allows for free circulation, more power to, to keep people out, to send them, to send them back. And, you know, what was fascinating as someone who dips in and out of, of close EU watching is that unlike 10 or 20 years ago, where the suggestion that the speed and depth of EU coming together could be stopped would have been heresy, Mm -hmm. Um, You know, what you heard from French and German and other commentators was, well, yeah, you know, that's negotiable. We can figure all of that out. The thing that's not negotiable is free movement of people. Hmm. And that, you know, that was that was surprising to me. And it made me realize that I'm not as in touch with with
0: all things European as I as I should be. When you say free movement of people, I assume you're talking about free movement of EU citizens.
1: Um, free, well, there's two pieces to it. One is free movement of EU citizens. Right. And then that gets, um, again, conflated with the problem of who has to take refugees and where they have to go and what you have to do with them when they get to Europe. Right. Um, and, you know, that's it's part of the reason that, that um, you know, yes, a Syrian who gets to the UK is going to be treated differently from a Pole who gets to the UK. Oh, okay. But part well but part of the angst about Syrians is a frustration over poles so les not lls yeah, 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 don't so, um, so actually the the um the creation of the free movement regime or freer movement again because the UK doesn't belong to Schengen right. but that created and accentuated a lot of of socio-economic, cultural angst, and, you know, the Syrians and Afghans are now sort of on the sharp end of that, but it didn't happen because of the Syrians and Afghans, it happened because of a, a decade of, of Eastern Europeans.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, all right, as someone who was in the UK um, last, a few weeks ago, and testified <laughs> to the House of Lords uh, EU committee, I will... Grandiosely claim expertise on it. No. Um, uh, first of all, if you ever do get the opportunity to testify in front of the House of Lords, I highly recommend you take it. It was just worth it for the experience alone. Um, I don't suppose you get to wear a wig, do you? No. I was bitterly disappointed about this. I was hoping for a more silly pomp and circumstance. And I mean, not even the names of the earls and barons and lords and baronesses were were all that silly. Frankly, it was a little depressing on that sense. On the other hand, as as I'm sure, since you've had to testify in front of Congress, you will be cheered to know that they actually all showed up and paid attention. Um, so that was a pleasant surprise, frankly, uh, and, and worth it. I mean, in some ways, weirdly, if those are Cameron's demands, uh, I'm weird. This leads me to be optimistic that a Brexit is not going to happen, um, and b that some deal will in fact be cut because the demands that he's making are not demands unique to britain um, and that you could argue this is something that in fact weirdly the polls themselves would probably agree with uh, with respect to um, you know uh, more power to national authorities uh, on a variety of things and deregulation and what have you um, and the euro parliament thing is an interesting move although between you me and the lamppost I'm not sure that's going to play out quite the way Cameron wants it. If it was actually implemented, um, I'm not sure that would play out the way anyone would would anticipate because the European Parliament elections have ridiculously low levels of turnout. Uh, But in some ways, what this this is, is is Cameron's way of finessing what is, I assume, British skepticism about the, you know, the Euro, uh, the European Union. While at the same time, a fundamental recognition by Cameron and presumably conservative elites that would actually be an unmitigated disaster for Britain to leave the Euro, uh, to leave the European Union. Um, and indeed, what was interesting to me was the extent when I was over there, and this made waves when I was over there, uh, was the fact that U.S. authorities made it very clear that if Britain were to exit the European Union, there would be no inclusion of Britain in TTIP, um, and that that actually kind of startled some people and I think uh, caused a slight reorientation of views. Why are you laughing? Um,
1: honestly, I was laughing at imagining how quick a Republican administration would be to reverse that.
0: Um, maybe I'm not sure how, what a Republican administration would say about this and There are actually strong geopolitical reasons why, if you were a Republican, you would want Britain to stay in the EU and not exit. Oh, yeah, 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 Um, yeah.
1: No, absolutely. But you also would. I mean, that sort of falls in the category of things that are that are smart to do from an overall geopolitical perspective. But in terms that will, that can also be viewed as a kind of, oh, my gosh, the special relationship. Yeah,
0: although so, let me put it this way. It, it, if nothing else, it's encouraging. Maybe it's because the issue didn't make the Republican radar. But I don't think I've heard any of the GOP candidates. I mean, it, this would have been a golden moment shh, for them shh, to say We this. probably shouldn't talk uh, about well, it. Well, I've blown everything. But I mean, Damn it, Dresden. I'm sorry. But to be fair, I don't think I've heard any GOP candidates actually yeah. suggest this, which suggests that maybe it won't quite play out the way you thought. But go ahead.
1: Well, and it is it is also true that it, it's the kind of thing that really shouldn't be a, a a presidential issue. I just wanted to to make one comment back on the European Parliament piece, which connects to your the comment you made about your testimony, that um, it's really easy for any sitting government to suggest that the European Parliament have more power, right. in as much as you know national parliaments, well particularly over our issues, national parliaments have less power over foreign and security policy and economic policy in Europe than they do here. The European parliament has less power relative to the EU than national parliaments have relative to their national governments. So it's also that unfortunately makes it kind of sad about, you know, when a whole room full of people show up to listen to you, but they still have relatively little impact on what their government does.
0: No, I don't disagree with that. Um, But look it this way, this, this, what, if what if that's what Cameron's proposing, I suspect there is a deal that can be made, and I suspect it will ensure that Great Britain stays in the European
1: I was struck, by the way, that Yanis um, Varoufakis, the former um, Greek finance minister, said in Ireland this week that if he were a British citizen and walked into the voting booth, his hand would be wandering toward no, but he hoped his head would, would assert control and, right. and push yes. I mean, the,
0: the general... Cons- When I was over there, the general consensus seemed to be that this was going to play out in many ways like the Scottish referendum did, Um, in that it's this kind of thing where perhaps some – maybe even a little bit better because you can argue that Cameron's trying to go out in front on this. But in the sense of – that, at any moment where it looks like the no vote might actually win, there will be a concentrated rhetorical fire – Making it exactly, you know, expressly clear what the costs are of an actual British exit from the European Union, which so which is why I think it's one of these things that like if you wanted, if you knew that you could make a no vote as a protest without there actually being any consequences, I think people would do it. But the moment that this actually becomes a live wire, um, I think people will vote with their pocketbook. So
1: so here's our great kind of totally slate pitchy. um construct for the day. Um, the British EU referendum will be more like the Scottish referendum than the Catalonian parliamentary elections. Discuss. There
0: you go. Um, we'll leave that to the commenters. Um, (laughs) so
1: you, um, speaking of other things that start with B, you've also been opining about the BRICS.
0: Yes. I I wrote a, a nice eulogy for the BRICS, uh, yesterday. Um, so the, the BRICS obviously for, uh, is an acronym that refers to uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and now South Africa. Um, and I've been doing a little research on them for this book that I'm writing called The Ideas Industry. And um, one of the things that is striking about the BRICS as a political grouping is that it started as a Goldman Sachs marketing term. That Jim O'Neill uh, came up with the term back in 2001 uh, as a way of arguing that, that – people should invest in the developing world. And this led to actual real world consequences first in that Goldman Sachs and then others set up so-called BRICS funds in which there were acronym funds, funds designed to target uh, investments in the developing world. And then uh, beginning somewhat in 2006 and then more concretely in 2009, the the BRICS themselves, his original formulation didn't include South Africa, um, led to actual meetings and summits of heads of state and foreign ministers. And now we have uh, something called the New Development Bank, uh, which is capitalized, I believe, at $100 billion, set up by the BRICS that could be seen by some as an alternative to the uh, pre-existing Bretton Woods institutions. Um, However, and and there was a lot of panic. You you can... Feel free to push back on me on this, but I always got the impression that that the BRICS got a lot of attention in Washington as this sort of world without the West example of uh, developing countries uh, somehow finding alternative means. Um, And now over the last two months, two things have happened that are worth taking note. The first is that Goldman Sachs has shut down its BRICS fund or rather merge that BRICS fund with another emerging market fund. And partly it's done so because, gosh, it turned out that uh, since its peak, that BRICS fund has lost 88% of its value because it turns out that these countries aren't doing quite as well as uh, O'Neill predicted. Although, to be fair, his original prediction actually does hold up pretty well. But post-2008, they've, they've all slowed down dramatically. Um, and furthermore, you're actually beginning to see, I think, some movement within the think tank community suggesting, yeah, we exaggerated the BRICS a little bit. So there's a, C- a CSIS report um, uh, by I'm going to forget his name, and I apologize for that, but basically arguing that there are hard constraints on what the BRICS can actually do; that they have not articulated a genuinely alternative strategy um, to sort of existing liberal order, and and that beyond the development bank, there really isn't going to be much in the way of actual coherent foreign policy among this grouping. And so, you know, this is one of those moments where I would like to say, fuzzy geoeconomic concept, please rest in peace and never come back.
1: Well, um, I will, it's irresistible to come back with the death of the BRICS is premature. There you go. Fair enough. And um, so, I mean, so thank you for setting me up with that, (laughs) that construct. And I, I do think, um, you know, t- to the extent that the the history of, of the construct is is, I mean, as a money making construct for Goldman Sachs, um, what, what what's sort of interesting about that is that it gets taken from being a money making construct and turned into a political capital making construct yeah. for the BRICS themselves. Um, and I'm I'm struck just at a very sort of anecdotal level that I uh, I had the the fun of um, trying to explain the U.S. political system, uh, 2016 specifically over lunch to a delegation of high level Russians um, <laughs> last last Friday. Yeah, you can you can only imagine how much fun that was. But at one point um, in trying to explain how Americans think about national security policy, I got a long lecture back from the senior Republican on the delegation that started with Lermontov and ended with the BRICS. Um, Its basic point seeming to be that the U.S. was stuck in imperial hubris akin to that of the officers in the 19th century Caucasus that Lermontov depicts, although I I was never quite sure that that was supposed to be the the metaphor, but but anyway, that to to uh, from a Russian political economy point of view, the BRICS are very much alive and very useful. Sure. And you know, similarly, from a Chinese and Brazilian point of view, which in no case was it ever primarily about making money, right? For well, them. of
0: course, not, not for the, yeah.
1: So, to the extent that you that you have the development bank and just a little sort of interesting anecdote I saw this week that, um, you know, U.S. and Western banks have not rushed back into Iran as fast as maybe we all thought they would. And I saw somewhere an unattributed quote saying, well, nobody wants to be the first, but also nobody wants to be the second or third. Everybody wants to be the sixth. And I thought, well, that'll be easy because the first five will be Chinese. Mm -hmm. So, I wonder whether we're actually not sort of going to move toward a two-tier system where, you know, yes, um, we are going to continue to have the institutions of either first or last resort, depending on how you look at it, and the capital markets of first or last resort, but – it's also going to be the case that you're going to have enormous amounts of money and influence that, that, that deliberately choose not to move through those institutions. So, you know, we're going to move from, if you forgive this grotesque analogy, we're going to move to a, to a multipolar economic world or a multi-system economic world. And so it's not, it's not going to be a question of Bretton Woods or something else. It's going to be a question of Bretton Woods and and something something else.
0: Uh, First of all, you seem you're fixated on the word grotesque today. So, you know, I am. Um, I am. uh, But second, I I would say a few things on this. The first is it's not shocking to me that the Russians talked up the bricks a lot to you. The Russians need the bricks more than anyone else. Um, Them talking up the bricks does not mean the bricks are as influential as they want it to be. Um, I agree with you that it would be in some ways, as much as I say fuzzy geoeconomic Concept rest in peace. I agree with you that there are ways in which the BRICS as a political grouping still matter. Um, you know, hundred billion dollars capitalized into a bank is is real. Um, and the one thing that these five actors do share is a resentment at being underrepresented in Western financial institutions and in the Bretton Woods institutions. So, so long as that perception still holds, these movement these these groupings will still have some kind of salience. That said. Um, To your larger concern about will you have Bretton Woods and other institutions, uh, it's going to take a long time for that to be the case. Uh, You know, Russia tried to do something like this in the immediate wake of the imposition of sanctions um, in terms of like coming up with an alternative means of, let's say, credit card payments, and they failed miserably at it. Uh, And in no small part, this is because I think there are genuine divisions within the BRICS themselves about the necessity of doing this, which is the Russians really, really want it. Um, I don't think any of the other four members are as keen about this. And provided the United States, and we've talked about this before, shows some restraint in its political use of the financial system, which is a fancy way of saying not sanction everyone, um, I don't think it'll trigger the kind of thing you're talking about, at least any time in the short term. Not to mention the fact that for any of this to actually take place, it will require China to actually be willing to open up its financial system and set up the renminbi as an alternative reserve currency. And events of the last six months suggest to me that if anything, despite claims that they want to move in that direction, they're not actually moving in that direction. So it'll take some time for that to happen. So I'm re- there, there are things I worry about this one I'm relatively sanguine about.
1: Yeah, no, your last point, I think, is your strongest one, that of all the things that, that China is taking on, um, making the renminbi into a reserve currency does not appear to be High on their list, yeah. and that limits um that limits at some level what what can be done otherwise although i again i'm I'm a little less sanguine than you are um you know frankly in in part because once once the bricks started on their own set of slowdowns post post two thousand eight and were less attractive markets for capital from other places, which I mean, is happening slowly, but is finally starting to happen, you know, in some ways that frees those economies up to care a little bit less. Um, And so then if, if among themselves, they can do deals that, that happen at their own tier without some of the same levels of scrutiny and, and structure that we, that, that come where Bretton Woods institutions money goes, you know, that that's where I think you end up with this kind of second speed, hmm. but but there's limit. You're right that there's limits on that yeah. as long as
0: you're not moving toward a, a reserve currency model. Um, that sounds right, and with that, I kind of need to get going.
1: Yeah, no, I think we've um, that was a the good you know from the from the domestic to the geopolitical. Um,
0: but Heather, a pleasure as always. Uh,
1: you too. Have a have a lovely Thanksgiving, same and to we'll you. see you we'll see you in December with um with red Starbucks cup there
0: we <laughs> there we go all right take care bye bye